Welcome. It's January 6, 2022, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy, and you can find our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group, and today I am delighted to be speaking with journalist and author Steve Call. Steve is a staff writer at The New Yorker, as well as the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. He has written countless articles on issues of politics, intelligence, and national security, including many touching on the Middle East and South Asia. And he is the author of several acclaimed books, including Ghost Wars and Directorate S, which together chronicle much of the history of the past several decades in Afghanistan and Pakistan. His most recent article in in The New Yorker, which I'll be asking him about here, co-authored with Adam Entis, is titled The Fall of the Islamic Republic, The Secret History of the U.S. Diplomatic Failure in Afghanistan. It was published this past month. Steve, thank you for coming on the Caravan Podcast. No, thanks, Cole. Glad to be here. So as I said, I'm delighted that you're here to to talk about uh, your most recent essay on the secret history of the U.S. diplomatic failure in Afghanistan. It's it's like nothing else that I've read so far on the subject. It draws on, as you write, hundreds of pages of meeting notes, transcripts, memoranda, emails, and documents, as well as extensive interviews with Afghan and American officials. And it tells the story of the debates and decisions in Washington, Kabul, and Doha that preceded the Islamic Republic's fall. And the Islamic Republic is, of course, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Uh, There's a lot of new details and revelations here, and and I highly recommend to our listeners to check out the article. Uh, Your judgment, of course, is is quite harsh of, of this entire process, you call it, quote, a dispiriting record of misjudgment, hubris, and delusion from the very start. So let's jump in at the beginning. You talk about the very start. Where does the diplomatic failure in Afghanistan begin? And from there, could you take us through some of the main steps or events that would ultimately uh, lead to the Taliban takeover in August 2021? Yeah, I think if you ask where did things begin to go wrong, uh, it's hard to find a date and a place. Um, But I think we can answer your question nonetheless. So uh, I guess uh, the history of these kinds of civil conflicts and of um, international engagement in civil wars, such as we saw in Afghanistan in the 20 years after 9-11, to the extent that they can ever be Uh, negotiated into uh, stability, if not a peace settlement, um, you know, it requires time and it requires determination. And so it's certainly not the, the, uh, my observation that it was a mistake to negotiate uh, toward a political settlement, because this is the common exit ramp in conflicts of this type. Uh, negotiations with the Taliban were slow to begin because during the first Bush administration, the Taliban were lumped in with all other global uh, terrorist organizations, including Al-Qaeda, which they had in fact accommodated in Afghanistan. But the fact that the Taliban arose from the indigenous population of Afghanistan, that they were a social uh, kind of reality in southern and eastern Afghanistan, it's kind of overlooked in the first years of the NATO intervention and occupation of Afghanistan, not occupation, but certainly military um, intervention there. And uh, the first time 
anybody started to think, well, maybe we should talk to the Taliban uh, as a way to both reduce violence, settle the war, and perhaps light an exit for ourselves during the Obama administration. Um, and there, uh, the negotiators started with Richard Holbrook, and then after his death, a career diplomat named Mark Grossman, and a big team at the State Department, they encountered the essential problem of negotiation, which was that the Taliban uh, did not want to talk to the Islamic Republic in Kabul. That is the constitutional government established by the bond process in December 2001 and recognized by governments all around the world, supported by European governments, the United States, Japan, South Korea, a ward of the international system to be sure, but a legitimate constitutional government. And the Taliban said, we don't, we're not talking to them. They're not, they're just a bunch of puppets. They're your puppets. We're not, we, we don't want to sit at the table with them. We only want to talk to you. And the United States said, okay, well, let's sorry, let's try that. What do you want to talk about? They said, well, we want to talk about your leaving. <laughs> that would be our main subject. And uh, while we're thinking about that, uh, how do we get you to go since you're an illegitimate occupier? Why don't you also uh, release some of our prisoners? So uh, the U.S. and the Taliban talked about prisoner exchanges and the outlines of a possible political settlement, but they did so without bringing Kabul to the table. At the time, the constitutionally elected president of the Islamic Republic was Hamid Karzai, and he basically called the U.S. on this during the Obama years and said, you can't do that. You can't leave me out. You're negotiating with my enemies. You're negotiating with an armed revolutionary movement that's seeking my overthrow. And every time you sit down with them in Qatar, you're adding legitimacy to their revolution. And you're not even, and I look, I'm a man of peace. I would love to settle this war. And I actually think the Taliban can be negotiated with. This was Karzai's position, as I'm summarizing it. But, you know, you got to bring me to the table. Well, the Taliban said, we don't want to talk to that guy. He's not legitimate. And so finally, the Americans chose and they said, uh, look, we're not going to talk to the Taliban without the Islamic Republic involved. And they basically walked away from serious discussions. They exchanged some prisoners, but that was about it. This is the time around, or, or is it before the Obama surge in Afghanistan? This was after the surge. After uh, the surge. Well, during and after the surge. The first meeting with the Taliban occurred in December 2010, if I'm remembering the month correctly. And the surge peaked the following summer, but the drawdown began fairly quickly and was sort of pre-announced. And uh, the negotiations essentially ended in the spring of 2013 when Karzai basically blew them up by saying to the Americans, I won't tolerate this anymore. I won't tolerate your negotiating with the Taliban without me. And the Taliban refused to budge on their position that they wouldn't talk to the Islamic Republic. So things really begin to change in, in the Trump administration. Yeah. They, so remember, that's 2013. That's you know several years before Trump's elected. And then in the first couple of years after uh, Trump was elected, he wasn't, uh, and his national security team were not interested in negotiations with the Taliban. Uh, to the contrary, H.R. Uh, McMaster, who's a colleague uh, out there at the Hoover Institution, uh, oversaw a new strategy that uh, really didn't center the peace negotiations or even take seriously the prospect of a peace with the Taliban. Uh, if you go back and read President Trump's speech in August of 2017, I think uh, when the review was completed, you get a pretty good outline of the basic findings of the review. And it was, 
look, we're going to have to stick this out. We're going to have to fight a smarter war. We're going to have to put more pressure on Pakistan where the Taliban find sanctuary. And uh, we're not saying, we're not ruling out peace negotiations, but we just don't, nobody knows when or how that's ever going to come about. And uh, that was the initial policy of the Trump administration. Well, then the president changed his mind because he felt uh, that he had been kind of suckered by his generals into doubling down on a war that he had campaigned against and had often spoken out about. And so uh, he, uh, you know, dispatched uh, General McMaster and uh, brought in a new team that wasn't any friendlier towards the idea of negotiating with the Taliban, but he appointed John Bolton, um, but he, uh, who was also opposed to negotiating with the Taliban, but uh, he had... Uh, Mike Pompeo move over from the CIA, and there's a little bit of uh, you know we 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 got I think under the tent pretty well in trying to document exactly what happened in these negotiations. But I, I'm a feel aware that one of the gaps is exactly what did Trump say to Pompeo about what he wanted. What we can see is that people who were coming onto the State Department to start negotiating with the Taliban at that time, circa 2018, we're being told that President Trump wanted out in six months. Uh, so clearly Mike Pompeo was under pressure to light a pathway to an exit from his boss. Um, and so he appointed Zalmay Khalilzad as his chief negotiator. Now we really get to the starting blocks of the narrative in our article. And that's Khalilzad. September 2018, right? September 2018, correct. And, you know, Khalilzad was a very well-qualified appointee. He had been U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. He'd served in several Republican administrations. Um, he spoke uh, Dari and Pashto, and he knew the players. Uh, didn't have a great relationship with Ashraf Ghani. There was a lot of tension in their relationship, as we described. They'd known each other since high school, and they'd both been exchange students in the United States, Ghani in Oregon and Khalilzad in California. Then they'd both been at the American University in Beirut. They'd bumped into each other there. But they'd kind of grown into sibling rivals by the time of Khalilzad's appointment. Uh, and, you know, Ashraf Ghani, President Ghani, was uh, sort of known for not being able to maintain, uh, you know, close relationships for for ha having a pattern of estrangement with his political peers that had already started in his relationship with Khalil Zad before they got to the really difficult work of trying to forge a way to explore political negotiations with the Taliban. But essentially, you know, to go to, to go back to our prehistory of the Obama years, Khalilzad came in and the people around him kind of made this clear to us during our reporting. And he said, look, we have played out the string of trying to um, include the Islamic Republic in negotiations with the Taliban uh, when the Taliban don't want them there. We, we can't, we don't have time uh, to do it that way. We have got to try to accelerate this process. And the only easy way to do that, and European allies, I think, agreed with Khalilzad about this. You know, the Germans, certainly, um, probably the Brits, I'm not so sure. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they, they basically said, look, let's talk to the Taliban. Taliban want to talk to us. We want to go. They want us to go. And in the course of that foundational kind of alignment, we can tuck in 
negotiations that will reduce violence in the war, uh, create a pathway for Afghans to talk to Afghans about a political settlement. Um, and so we can almost use the leverage of our common ground with the Taliban to construct this broader peace settlement. That was Khalilzad's going in position. And I think um, he was sincere about it. You know, he was born in Afghanistan. Uh, he wanted the war to end. Uh, he was ambitious, like, you know, you would want someone to be, as they say sometimes, you know, let other people's ambition be your friend. I'm sure that occurred to Pompeo sometimes. If you can make this happen, you know, whatever fantasies of a Nobel Peace Prize you might have, great, get energized, go out there and try to make it happen. And so I think um, the negotiations started on a sound premise, uh, which Khalilzad himself often articulated, which was there are basically four, they sat down with the Taliban um, uh, soon after uh, Khalilzad got started, so in 2019. And um, they identified four subjects for negotiation. One was the American withdrawal. Uh, another was the Taliban's promise that they would not allow Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, or other international terrorist groups to operate from Afghanistan against the United States or its allies in the future. The third was um, a political settlement, that is a new constitutional order in which the Taliban would give up arms and enter politics, as many guerrilla groups before them had done, and the, and the fourth was a cessation of violence, uh, which would accompany, obviously, the path towards such a constitutional settlement. And what Khalilzad used to say at the start, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. That to me is a measure that he did start out with a sincere idea that this would, you know, that, the, that he would leverage the U.S. Withdrawal, withdrawal to achieve peace and stability in Afghanistan, or at least some measure of it. I mean, you know, you, you're not never going to get um, a, a perfect cessation of violence or a perfect political settlement. So that, but he, 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 just to clarify, he genuinely believed that there could be a power sharing arrangement between the Taliban and the government in Kabul. I don't know. I mean, you know, what did he believe at two in the morning tossing about what the Taliban? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't try to get that far inside people's heads. But I think his actions made clear that he was conditioning agreement on the U.S. withdrawal, at least at the beginning, upon the achievement of that. And the second piece that he had to work with was that the Taliban were telling him that they wanted to share power, that they were willing to share power, that they had learned their lessons, that they were not absolutists anymore. And, you know, there was a kind of narrative about why this made sense. Well, they'd been in exile. They'd seen the Arab Spring. Their horizons had broadened. They'd become part of Islamist political discourse. And, you know, there are Muslim Brotherhood groups in the Gulf and other places that, you know, take seats in rump parliaments and so on. And so there was this whole idea that, well, maybe they would be political competitors. Uh, and But you really had to stretch to believe that. Uh, but, the, but that was basically um, the hypothesis that, yes, based on what they were saying, and once they sent um, uh, Mullah Berader, their chief negotiator, who was a pretty credible figure, co-founder of the Taliban, had been in prison in Pakistan for a number of years, was released, showed up in Qatar as the lead negotiator. 
Uh, he was a senior enough figure that if he says it, all right, well, you know, it's not just some deputy assistant secretary. Uh, this is a this is a principal. He's, uh, you know, maybe not the highest ranking um, figure, but certainly credible. So that's where it began on that belief. Well, so here's the thing. Whatever the the outlook was at the beginning, uh, the good thing about negotiations is you can test your hypotheses. You, know, you can say, okay, uh, well, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. They sit down. The first thing that happens is they agree immediately on the things they already know they agree about, which is the Americans are willing to leave, especially under President Trump. They're willing to leave quickly. Um, the Taliban have a great script about international terrorists never operating from Afghanistan and their willingness to provide guarantees about that. Uh, then Khalilzad says, okay, now let's talk about the other two things, the other two of the four, a reduction in violence or a ceasefire, and you start talking to Kabul, to President Ghani, to the Islamic Republic. Taliban, whoa, 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 that's confident. We don't want to do that. I don't really know. And so as soon as they resist, uh, the U.S. is tested, and gradually over the course of the negotiations, uh, the U.S. basically caves in. Um, and, you know, if, again, without getting inside everybody's head at every moment, I, I think what you can say, you step back and you look at it and you say, at the end of the day, uh, once those negotiations were tested and the Taliban proved to be unyielding about peace and political power sharing, what did the negotiation become about? Did it wasn't it primarily about the U.S. withdrawal? It was basically political cover for the U.S. withdrawal. And at a certain point, um, the U.S. chose to make the negotiation about the U.S. exit at the expense of uh, any reasonable prospect that a settlement would be achieved. Um, it refused to uh, insist that. Uh, everything is agreed and uh, or nothing is agreed. So let's get to the deal that the United States and the Taliban ultimately did sign together in Doha in February 2020. The deal, as I understand it, uh, essentially the United States pledges that it will leave Afghanistan uh, entirely by May 2021. And the Taliban in return pledge not to allow groups like Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State and other terrorist organizations to threaten the United States, and they also agree to sit down for negotiations with the Afghan government. But things don't go uh, too swimmingly from here. Can you talk a bit about, about this and what went wrong with the deal? No, you got it. I mean, basically, um, <laughs> you know, the, the deal in February 2020 uh, ratified the two things that had been agreed upon from the beginning. The U.S. will leave by a date certain, May 2021. The Taliban will guarantee that Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and any other group like them will not attack the United States or its allies. Then on the question of uh, political talks, all the Taliban promise is that they will sit down with the Islamic Republic. That's it. They don't say we're going to make an agreement. They just say we will, we will talk to them. Um, but as soon as the, uh, the ink is dry, uh, or even before, the Taliban say, oh, oh, before we sit down, you need to release uh, 5,000 of our political prisoners that are being held by the Islamic Republic. This was a provision that they kind of jammed in and that Khalilzad accepted 
uh, toward the end of the very you know substantial negotiations. Uh, there were military representatives in the room when that idea was mooted by the Taliban who wanted to walk out, who couldn't believe that Khalilzad was conceding on it, but the concession was made. And the impression was that, well, okay, the prisoner releases will go alongside, will accompany, will be, will run in parallel to the political talks. So there'll be a little bit of confidence building and, and things will work in parallel stages. Well, then the Taliban, after the deal was signed, said, no, 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 that's not what we meant. We're not talking to anybody until all 5,000 of our prisoners are released. So Khalilzad goes to Kabul, uh, he goes to President Ghani, he says, uh, mm, Look, don't don't listen to them. They, they say five thousand. Well, just release a thousand. Uh, I'll get them to I'll get them to agree that that's enough, and we'll start the talks. So Ghani says, "I don't really love this. I these are my prisoners. I wasn't even at the table. I didn't authorize you to re, to promise to release any of them." But does a study sees a thousand people that look harmless. He releases them. Taliban. So Khalilzad says, "Okay, well, we brought you the broom of the wicked witch of the West. Let's get going on the negotiations." Taliban says, not, says not, enough. Not, "Not enough." And and not only do they say that's not enough, they produce a list of five thousand names, and they say it's not just any five thousand; it's these five thousand. And until they're released, we're not talking to anybody. And this produced a stalemate. Went back and forth. Khalilzad kept thinking he was going to get the Taliban to settle for less. They never did. Ultimately, the United States brought all of its weight down on Ghani. I mean, Secretary Pompeo, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, White House Chief of Staff, calling Ghani saying, you got to do this. And the reason is because the Taliban told them, if you do this, we really will give you a ceasefire. And there was such desperation to reduce the violence and suffering in Afghanistan that uh, they bought that line. But of course, it didn't didn't happen. They released all 5,000 prisoners, but the Taliban continued to fight. I want to bring up one more detail that I, I was not aware of until I read your article. And this is that in March 2020, Pompeo says to President Ghani, we will only leave when there is a political resolution. Thus, he seems to suggest that the U.S. withdrawal is conditional on these intra-Afghan talks actually producing a resolution. But of course, that's not what the what the Doha Accord that was signed in February 2020 actually says. Um, yeah. How did you feel? What did you well, make of that? I mean, that? you know, it's, this is why I thought the record was so kind of dismal. Um, I mean, we did, um, my, my colleague Adam Entus and myself, we did obtain a pretty good uh, record of what was said um, at high levels between Kabul and Washington and between Washington and the Taliban uh, over the course of the period from 2018 to 2021. And so uh, I saw, I reviewed a lot more of the record than is in that article. And there's a fraction of what's there. And it's, it's, um, it's hard to tell sometimes when people say to the Afghans, but we, we told the Afghans over and over again, we're not going to leave until there's peace and a political settlement. That's your leverage. Don't worry about making concessions on prisoners to the Taliban because we're not going anywhere until everything is agreed. Now, was that cynical? Was that just manipulative? Was that Secretary Pompeo's sincere belief, even though he knew his president wanted out yesterday and that his president was unilaterally reducing the American troop presence over the advice of his generals 
again and again, um, or certainly over the preference of his generals, because his generals often tailored their advice to what they know that knew the boss wanted. But, you know, he was acting arbitrarily. He was tweeting out, uh, you know, that he was going to leave periodically. So it put President Ghani in a kind of difficult position. On the one hand, very credible American figures, not just a political appointee like Secretary Pompeo, but the chairman of the Joint Chiefs would come to him and say, we are not going to leave until these conditions are met. But he could read the newspapers, he could read Twitter, and he could see if he knew anything about the American system, he knew that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of State don't make the final call. It's the president. Uh, so if you, if you read the president's Twitter feed, how do you reconcile that with what these people are telling you? Are, is the president secretly saying to the secretary of state, look, I'm not going to leave. I'm just tweeting all this stuff because it's good for my political position. But we're going to stay, uh, you know, and, until the Taliban capitulate. I mean, in any event, what happened was uh, these statements were made again and again, including the one you point out in March of 2020. And President Ghani really believed them. Um, you know, I was struck in the course of verifying some of these conversations. Uh, we were talking, Adam and I were talking to someone who's quoted uh, without a name attached in Europe. And we were, we were just trying to run through what we understood had happened. And he said, oh yeah, that, that thing that Pompeo said in March, like, President Ghani went around Europe telling everyone that because he was so excited that this guarantee had been made to him. Uh, and we kept saying to him, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm reading President Trump's Twitter feed. I'm not sure what you can rely on there. But, you know, it's just as a, as a journalist, you get used to political, you know, professional politicians not meaning what they say. And it's hard to get too outraged about the kind of habits of professional politicians after a while. Mm -hmm. But I just found that just to be just dismal, uh, really dispiriting right. because, you know, either uh, it was entirely cynical or it was mostly cynical, but it was it's hard to kind of see it in any other light, at least in my reading. And it, it did seem, at least from from my reading, to, to evoke a bit more sympathy for Ghani than I had previously had. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was part of the problem for sure. But, you know, you put him, you put people in a weak, uh, you know, he's he's a weak president in so many different ways. You put him in an, impo an impossible position and then he fails. OK, well, you know, it's not so surprising. Right. So I want to um, just hone in a little bit on this dynamic between Ghani and, and Khalilzad. Um, one thing that was interesting is how much. Uh, the the one blames the other for for the impasse and the failure, and uh, Ghani seems to believe that that Khalilzad and the Americans more generally were, were hoodwinked by the Taliban, and they were you know too credulous, uh, believing that the Taliban were actually willing to negotiate when they weren't. Um, but Khalilzad saw Ghani as as the problem. Could you could you talk a little bit about his perspective? Yeah, I mean Khalilzad correctly believed that Ghani did not believe it was in his interest to share power with the Taliban and that he, uh, more than that, was um, willing to resist negotiations by slow rolling requests that Khalilzad made for delegations, for compromises. So what, uh, you know, what some of us might see as a perfectly legitimate resistance by Ghani to releasing prisoners um, without 
concessions by the Taliban, Khalilzad saw as just one more evidence that one more piece of evidence that that Ghani wanted to slow roll the negotiations, that he didn't really want to share power. And Khalilzad developed the conviction that if a political settlement was achievable, it would require Ghani to give up his office and that Ghani got wind of that uh, and he didn't want to give up his office. And so the distrust uh, of, of one another and the, and the sort of sense of zero sum uh, you know, consequences of these negotiations between Ghani and Khalilazad intensified was not helpful. It kind of distorted the whole negotiation, became something other than professional diplomacy. It was professional diplomacy plus something really personal um, and, and visceral between them. I think each believed of the other uh, that the other was you know, excessively egoistic and ambitious, um, which might not be an unfair critique up to a point of one another. Um, but they also believe things about one another that just weren't true. I mean, the, you know, mm -hmm. Ghani would believe of Khalilzad that he was a tool of the Pakistanis, which is ridiculous. I mean, Khalilzad uh, was hostile to Pakistan when he was ambassador. And in any event, um, that he wasn't a tool of Pakistan. Uh, and Khalilzad would believe of Ghani that, you know, that he was willing to tear the whole country down, that he would never give up power, that he was, you know, that he was just unshakably stubborn without seeing the world from Ghani's perspective, without recognizing that, you know, there were political consequences to him of releasing 5,000 prisoners with nothing in return for that, um, and that he was being undermined, that his own legitimacy was being undermined as soon as Doha was signed. And also he was the commander in chief of an army that had now been ordered into a more passive posture by these secret annexes that were part of the Doha Agreement, which basically limited offensive operations as part of the, the way that the US and the Taliban agreed on the pathway to an American withdrawal. Okay, so perhaps where Ghani was correct was in his assessment of the negotiations with the Taliban not being um, genuine or or being conducted in good faith um so that's is kind of we come to the end of the trump administration the end of the trump administration and the beginning of the biden administration january 2021 he of course would uh, in april 2021 uh, deliver this address where he announces his decision to withdraw all american forces from afghanistan by september 11th and that doesn't seem to come with any uh, conditions or strings attached and um you talk a little bit about about that decision and and its effect on the on the war in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, I, I suppose briefly we can consider you know Biden's perspective all uh, about all of this as is well known. You know, he was a skeptic of the Afghan war when he was vice president. He was more than a skeptic in my sense of him uh, as a reporter. You know, having talked with him a couple of times about the war. Um, I don't think he really believed in the in the Afghan project. Uh, he didn't have much empathy for the Afghan population, its suffering, um, or its achievements um, during the 20 years after 9-11, the rise of this middle class and the technocratic class that Ghani tried to champion. Like none of that, which is, you know, maybe, maybe uh, not everyone is moved by the achievements of life expectancy of uh, women's rights and and access to work and income 
But those were real things that happened in those 20 years alongside all the bad things. And, and, and for, you know, that's what made so many American leaders who were knowledgeable about Afghanistan and at worst ambivalent about the war because they could see the achievements. Biden, for some reason, it just didn't connect with him. The Afghan story, he didn't seem to have Afghan interlocutors um, that he found moving or interesting. He didn't, it just, he held it at arm's length. Um, it was kind of odd because he wasn't that way about everything in the world by any means. Um, but so he comes in with this instinct. Uh, he, he basically, I think, uh, would have been hard to persuade in any circumstances, but he inherited a difficult situation. He's got a clock ticking, ticking to May 21. Uh, he's got an agreement that's not binding. He could certainly blow it up um, and walk away from it, much as uh, the Trump administration walked away from the Iran agreement. Um, but he's got to think that through pretty quickly, and he's got to be prepared to fight uh, the Taliban uh, if he abandons or dramatically delays uh, or reconditions an American withdrawal on political talks, for example, or a ceasefire. Um, you know, his military, uh, the full range of military advice he got, I don't think uh, Adam and I penetrated entirely, but I think we got a pretty good portrait of the top line advice. And, it, you know, the generals weren't scared of the Taliban. They, they were prepared to fight if uh, the president decided to tear up the agreement or postpone it indefinitely. Uh, and they didn't think it would be terribly costly. I mean, the high water mark of American casualties in Afghanistan was when we had 100,000 American troops and another 25,000 NATO troops on the ground fighting, uh, you know, kind of ground-based counterinsurgency war. I mean, we've been fighting primarily with air power and special forces for years. And uh, even if that fight got hot, I think the generals advising Biden thought, well, we can carry the day. But you have to be politically prepared to defend an escalation of violence. There will be some casualties. There will also be Afghan casualties. And I think Biden just was, um, you know, he didn't he didn't want that. Um, he want to pay that political cost and believe in the war enough to do so. And he also couldn't see an ending. He got this kind of mealy mouth advice, I think, from the Pentagon, which was, well, just give it six more months and maybe we will have success at the negotiations that haven't succeeded until now. And that was kind of an invitation to, to Biden and his smart you know, advisors like Jake Sullivan, these kind of champion debaters and Yale Law School grads. I mean, you, you give them a hole of logic, they're going to drive a truck through it. And that's what they did. It's like, you know, it's a, uh, it would have been easier. It would have actually probably been more persuasive to say we should just stay indefinitely because that kind of half measure we're trying to appeal to where they thought Biden was actually backfired, I think. It does seem like we could have stayed indefinitely while pushing the Taliban on the negotiations and saying, yeah, once you affect something, then yeah, yeah, we'll leave um, yeah. And, and, you know, call their bluff whether they're actually going to attack us. Yeah. Um, yeah, but by just the, a, I think that was the honest alternative. Would have but, been but, but by announcing that we were, you know, this is the deadline, we're out, no strings attached, that really seems to have accelerated the Taliban's uh, advance. Oh, I mean, yeah, it, it, I mean, it was a, the Taliban, you know, the, you, there are different ways to characterize where the war was before Doha. Um, it was, you know, I think that the two plausible descriptions are that it was a stalemate or that it was a stalemate that was deteriorating in favor of the Taliban. But certainly there was uh, no time at which the Taliban was able to capture a major city 
uh, or even a significant district center and hold it for longer than a couple of weeks, uh, all the way up until the spring of 2021. I mean, that's remarkable. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the ring of steel around the Afghan cities, although it was penetrated, there's certainly lots of Taliban living in the cities under cover, but, you know, the cities were defended and the Taliban couldn't take them because they had no answer to American air power. Uh, and so if, uh, you know, so, so once the Americans announced that they were going, the, the principal sort of superpower that the Afghan security forces had relied on to hold their own all these years, which was close air support and strategic bombing uh, when necessary, uh, was headed to the exit. There was no, even though we had invested a lot in building up the Afghan Air Force, its maintenance and operations were entirely dependent on U.S. systems. And we had no answer to the question, well, how are we going to keep these helicopters and planes in the air? And uh, long before the kind of tactical environment between the Taliban and Afghan forces uh, tilted suddenly in the Taliban's favor, the psychological shift, this, the loss of fighting morale among the Afghan security forces, um, you know, took hold by May, June, um, it was essentially over and the Taliban uh, very cleverly uh, negotiated peaceful surrenders, gave people passage uh, and, and put people on parole without you know, executing them in retribution. And the word spread that if you surrendered, you might get home in one piece and people started to surrender. And, and then the Taliban had their own channels. This was something I think nobody in NATO quite had a grip on and it would be hard for historians to ever document it fully, but the Taliban had their own back channels to the regional powers in Afghanistan. So one governor at a time, they, they had long been kind of keeping channels open, negotiating local truce, truces and, and agreements. And, uh, and they were able to, to buy their way into some of these provincial capitals, I think, uh, pretty easily. And then that set of dominoes really accelerated the collapse. Yeah, I suppose that Biden's decision actually uh, ended up making the the war shorter and uh, less bloody in a, in a certain way. Yeah, it's true. So um, to come back to the what you'd call the the record of misjudgment, hubris, and delusion, uh, these attributes are, I suppose, uh, not explicitly attributed to any one individual. Uh, but they do seem perhaps uh, in different measures to apply to a lots of, of different people. Um, at the end of the day, would you say that uh, it's, it was a collective failure that all the people involved kind of exhibited these, these attributes um, and that together they, they failed or, or was there more, or do you think that they, they apply more to one person or, or a couple people in particular? Well, I think there's plenty to go around. Um, you know, I, I think history is complicated and a structural collapse of the sort we saw in August, which, you know, had roots going back 20 years and all kinds of cascading bad decisions um, that were never corrected, um, contributed. But I think, you know, and, and I think among Afghans, and I completely understand this, um, you know, Afghans look to their own leadership and their failures and their hubris, a lot of anger and dismay at President Ghani's responsibility for not commanding the security forces more successfully, for micromanaging 
and for being hubristic himself in his assumption that the U.S. would always be there. So you know, there's a lot of a lot of uh, valid anguish and criticism about this. At the end of the day, though, I do think the United States uh, was the major power in this equation. Uh, you know, we, we talk these days in offices about power differentials. You know, uh, talk about a power differential. Uh, the United States the world's uh, hyper military power and it had a client in Afghanistan that was entirely dependent on its actions to survive and um, that you know we had built up a lot of Afghan capacity uh, very impressively but it was not an army or a state that could withstand the kind of abrupt uh, self-interested decision that we made in 2021 to leave without adequate preparation and to leave without having reduced violence or created a pathway to political uh, compromise and stability that might at least offer a reasonable prospect of greater peace, if not a perfect peace. Um, in the end, I think the United States, um, uh, you know, sort of misled uh, its Afghan partners by suggesting that it was going to prioritize a political settlement uh, at the highest uh, order and that it would not withdraw until it had a reasonable path to such a peace. Uh, and that proved to be wrong across two administrations. Um, and I think it's a shameful episode. Um, you know, there was also a, whether it was delusion or just a willingness, a, a desperate need to believe that the Taliban would share power I mean, that misjudgment uh, persisted so long uh, against in the face of so much contrary evidence that you can only assume that the very smart people who continued to credit the idea that the Taliban would share power, um, you know, at a certain point, they, they couldn't afford to admit uh, the alternative, uh, which was that the Taliban really had no record of ever sharing power in the way um, that the negotiations contemplated. You know, in the end, it's very hard to read people's intentions at time, but you can certainly uh, read their actions. And the Taliban had been amply tested about whether they were willing to compromise on these matters. Uh, and they, they simply never moved. They never compromised. And uh, I, I don't, you, you know, I, I just think this is, I read the record this way. I'm really not, take, try to take the emotion out of it it's not about individuals, but you look at it at the end of the day, the Taliban's behavior was highly consistent. <laughs> and, right. and so every time we tested them, they remained firm. And yet we continued to believe or we needed to believe that they would compromise in order to tell a story that would allow us to go. So it wasn't really a political negotiation. It wasn't really a uh, negotiation about a peace settlement. It was a negotiation about the American withdrawal. If we'd been honest about that, we might have done a better job of getting out, to be honest. I mean, we could have said, look, peace with the Taliban is unachievable. I don't at least unless the Taliban change radically, we have tested them. There's no there's no there there. So uh, we, we're going to leave nonetheless because we can't afford we just we've decided as a democracy we can't afford to stay there any longer. So suppose that was your decision. Well, you might go about it in a different way. It's kind of the way the Soviets got out, which was, okay, we're going to take about two or three years. We're not going to tell you exactly how long. 
And we're going to concentrate all our efforts at strengthening the Afghan military and state so that they don't fall apart when we leave. We're going to take a look at how sustainable their air maintenance is. We're going to take a look at what kinds of systems they can run themselves. And if we have to reset and reinvest so that they can stand on their own, we're going to do it honorably. Like that would have been the honorable way to leave uh, with the benefit of hindsight would have been to say, forget about talking to the Taliban, at least until they change. Let's let's do better at getting um, our partners that we've spent 20 years building up into a position to hold their own. Well, unfortunately, we can't go back in time and, and try that scenario out. But I, I certainly agree with with your view. Steve Cole, I want to thank you very much for coming on the Caravan podcast. I would once again like to recommend uh, his article with Adam Entis titled The Fall of the Islamic Republic, The Secret History of the U.S. Diplomatic Failure in Afghanistan, which is in The New Yorker. Please subscribe to the podcast. My colleague Russell Berman or myself will be back soon for the next episode. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.